Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest this week is Oksana Sobel. Oksana leads the insights function at the Clorox company, where she's implementing an agile, fast, and consumer-centric insights model. Her global career spans everything from brand marketing and market research in her native Ukraine and then the Czech Republic. She's worked for big companies like Nielsen, Kraft Foods, Unilever, J&J, and Mondelez. Here is my very, play on words, insightful conversation with Oksana Sobel. Please welcome Oksana Sobel to the show. Such a pleasure to be here, Steve. And do I have it right that I'm the first insights person on your podcast? You are indeed. Thank you for reminding me of that. I, I wish I had some kind of award or <laughs> I'll make up a badge that you can put on your LinkedIn. How's that? That sounds wonderful. And so full disclosure, not a CMO, but but maybe a whisperer, maybe a little bit like you in the sense of being the purveyor of information that business leaders rely on. Oh, and by the way, I wanted to say mm -hmm. congratulations to you, Steve, on being recognized as Digital Marketing News, five marketing podcasts that everyone needs to listen to right now. And you just barely got started. Thank you very much. It was quite a surprise, and I am very humbled and honored, and I just love to do what I do. I love to engage in conversation, and even though you and I are barely getting to know each other in the grand scheme of things, you probably already can tell that I kind of like what I do. That sure helps. <laughs> it does. It does. So I know you've listened to some episodes, and you know how I start each episode, but I'm going to throw a little twist in it first, though. So the question I normally ask every guest, regardless of what their title was and what their role was and what their background is, what's the difference between marketing and advertising? You know, I do have an opinion about that, but let me first give you an opinion of someone else. So mm -hmm. researchers like me, we like to go and seek out opinion leaders and get their take. And in this case, I thought it might be interesting to ask someone from the Gen Alpha generation, and those are their kids. Those are the ones born 2011 onward. But here's the answer I got from, from one of them. Marketing is when you say something that's enticing, but true. And advertising is when you are blatantly lying, like this wipe can erase a Sharpie when in reality it will just smear it all over the wall. Wow, Steve, I, I have to say, I found this answer to be very re revealing on two levels. One, I suspect it sheds some light onto the origins of the mysterious amoeba-shaped stain on my dining, dining room wall. But two, it does make me a bit worried because if this is how Gen Alpha feels about advertising already, if they're already suspicious and distrustful based on what little experience they have, then we've got some work to do as an industry to set things right. Yeah, that's, that's very telling that they equate advertising to lying. Isn't that sad? It, it is. It is. And I have a million thoughts running through my head of how we failed as an industry, right? I have yeah. to well, It will be fun to compare notes once we get into that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So 
do you define it? How do you define the difference between marketing and advertising? Right. Oh, okay. So I, the visual that pops into my head is something like, here's a, a car manufacturing factory. And that to me is marketing because there is so much that goes into designing, producing, getting a vehicle to market. Advertising is like the beautiful, glossy, shiny, pretty, on-trend, exciting paint job on that car. That's what, that is one of the first things that consumer sees and, and that is what gets them excited and interested and curious. But, but really advertising is kind of that beautiful wrapping on a product. A lot more goes into putting a product together and that's what marketing is concerned with. Mm. Okay. As you know, there's no right or wrong answer. That's why I ask it. I like to just get everybody's thoughts and opinions and I you know, one day, maybe I'll just go out on the street and ask 10 consumers, too, what they think. That would be really interesting. That would be fun. Right. Okay. So ahead of this call, knowing your background, I went to Google and I typed in marketing insights. Just very generic term. I wanted to see how many hits came back. It was 1.7 or over 1.7 billion hits came back from Googling the term marketing insights. Now, I get it. It's a very generic term. That may sound high to you, low to you, given your background. I don't know. Yes, things should not be that complicated. <laughs> exactly. Right? Thank you for saying what I was thinking. <laughs> right? And then I looked up the definition. And the very first one I came to is the one I want to share because one, I want your thoughts on the definition that I found and then give me your definition. So the, the very first definition that I found for the term marketing insights goes like this. Marketing insights are collections of data that provide marketers with valuable information on the wants and needs of the brand's target demographic. It differs from regular data science in that the numbers themselves are only representative of the insights. Your thoughts? Hmm, okay. Well, when I hear uh, insights are a collection of data, I take issue with it right there because data is what we work with, but data just describes what is and actually more accurately what has been. Data is always backward looking. Data can be found, data can be extracted, data can be synthesized, but insights have to be developed. Insights are not in the data. Insights have to be put by a person on top of the data. And I always say that the best decisions are a combination of three things. It is data and insights plus experience plus gut. It is not based on data or insights alone. You do need to bring those other holistic pieces to bear in order to arrive at the best decision you can. Okay, so since you went there and there being what I very often referred to as the elephant in the room of every single marketer. And that's those two little words, two little, I'm uh, sorry, um, initials, AI, that is on the minds and hearts and souls and everything else for every marketer the world over. And I've asked plenty of CMOs, you know, I'll just do like a word association with them. I'll go, AI, go. <laughs> and then I get all different kind of answers. I'm very curious from your perspective, Especially now thinking about how you defined it's part this, it's part that when it comes to insights. What are you seeing from and hearing from marketers when it comes to AI and insights? And where do you see AI going when it comes to insights? 
Mm -hmm. uh, there's AI in marketing and there, there's AI in insights. We can talk about both. AI has been in insights for many years already. When people come and say, what tools do you have that use AI? We don't really have hardly any tools anymore that do not use AI. But usually what people are referring to is Gen AI, which is uh, just about coming up on its first anniversary and has been has been shaking up the industry quite a bit. So for insights, where we have always found AI incredibly helpful is working with vast amounts of data. And so the tools have made it easier, faster, which means we can bring the answers to our business decision makers quicker. Uh, but with emergence of Gen AI, we are opening up whole new horizons and kind of peeling the onion a layer at a time. So I feel like the layer that has been peeled in these 11 months since the emergence of it is uh, the level of synthesis where your best answer should not be based on just one input. You will want to consider everything you know, ideally, to bring an answer back. And this is where Gen AI shines. Gen AI shines in synthesizing information and, and having that conversational capability. So that has probably been one of the first go-tos. Another one, we have used it to help with developing research projects. So things like writing questionnaires. And then there is a layer where if you go to the consumers, as you might, to ask them about the difference in advertising and marketing, what you will get back is hundreds of videos. And so in, in the past, we pretty much had to kind of sit there, watch through everything, and then try and come up with what is the overarching answer that's emerging here. That's again where Gen AI is incredibly helpful because it will crunch through transcripts and very quickly synthesize. Here are the main themes. Here's what's different. Here's here's what's what's the same. So that's all what has happened already in the few short months. Um, I just came back from the market research event in Denver, and it was fantastic to see people bringing back case studies. So little examples but real enough. And this tells me that this next year will be the year of Gen AI application in market research where we uh, test, learn, and scale. And this is where the progress will be quick. Mm. Interesting. Do you get the feeling that some marketers, brands, whatever, either are or will become too reliant on AI? when it comes to insights, meaning move away from their gut and their experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, will the pendulum swing too far the other way? As it tends to, right? It, it kind of, that's how it goes, that the pendulum swings too far. Everybody is excited, but also everybody feels like they will get left behind if they did not get all in. And so suddenly a competitive advantage is reaped by somebody who has more of that human magic in the mix. So I'll give you an example, Steve, with e-com content generation. So the images, the videos that you see when you research products online, a lot of them are generated by AI already. But what's more, a lot of them are being tested by AI, not on real consumers, but what we call synthetic panels. And so these are kind of robots extrapolating how they think a consumer will react to a particular piece of content and assigning it a score accordingly. And so it has crossed my mind that at some 
point, the system will become such a closed in loop that it will be difficult to get breakthrough ideas out of it. And so then somebody who looks at it from the outside and says, I'm going to zig when everyone is zagging and I'm going to put some human creativity behind creating these images and suddenly they will look dramatically different from every other image out there and, and kind of get the competitive advantage that way. So I think we are, we'll go through several pendulum swings as we figure out what does that most productive, most generative human machine collaboration look like. So is it fair to say that the, the ones that will be most successful when it comes to marketing and insights are those, to coin a phrase, who find you know, the sweet spot right, of what works best for them? That is probably always the case. The question is how how to find that sweet spot and which end of things are you are you getting in on? You know, are you getting kind of like on the more AI leaning end and and driving it towards where can the the human sprinkle some pixie dust, or are you just getting started on your AI journey? You know, it's kind of like how that uh, joke goes that there are only two strategies in marketing. You can either weird the normal or normal the weird and that depends on your starting point if you have a product that is highly unusual uh, you you are going to try and make it seem as normal as possible but if you are starting with you know a 50th brand of toothpaste you will want to stand out and so there's kind of like a little bit of that going on right now where is creativity coming from. And it seems like it's equally coming from both ends. We've seen really interesting concepts generated by machines without human Mm -hmm. intervention. We've seen great examples of a human enhancing what a machine has done. We have seen machine enhancing what human has done. So it's, it's a dance. It's this interesting dance. Where do you come down on this debate around generative AI and what it means for our industry? So here's here's one of my, and it's actually, it's a good segue because I was going to ask you about this, but I'll bring up my thoughts first, is I have a fear, and I know you've heard this term, you know, inherent bias when it comes to AI, right? And I know there's a, there's a big concern among advertisers and brands, and I've seen it happen where a given brand will use a chat GPT or another AI tool to say, you know, create me an ad, write me a script for X, Y, Z. And there will be an inherent bias that comes through in what the AI tool generates. I don't know if you've come across this or heard of this, but I've seen it in action and it's a bit worrisome. And it goes back to what I said earlier about are marketers going to be too reliant on, you know, the automation, if you will, of AI to say, hey, shoot me, you know, spit me out five campaigns for this campaign for my new insert name of product here, right? And then run with it without even looking at it, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. my fear, my concern, my thoughts on, on the use of AI is the inherent bias that I, I have seen from, my, from the advertising, the traditional putting my old agency hat on days of where someone will just follow blindly to something that an AI tool spits out and then run with it, produce it, and then go, "Uh uh-oh, we shouldn't have done that. It makes sense because that's what we are seeing at the moment, which is a function of how AI is trained, the data sets. It's also, it also reveals something about us as humans because AI is trained on what we give it and we give it what we have. So we should all 
have a think about our inherent biases and what is what is out there. I do believe it will get better. AI will get better, but also, uh, so what, what we are seeing in implementing some of these solutions is that actually the heavy burden is on training people to work mm. with it productively and to understand what are the limitations, what are the watchouts, how do you ask the question, how do you not ask the question? So it seems like at least this intermediary stage is where everyone needs to become a really good prompter also. Yeah. Can I tell yeah, you about exactly. like my little personal moment, my little touring moment with ChatGPT and its Please. capacity to learn? So this is November 2022. It just came out and I cannot take my hands off this thing. I'm just trying one thing after another. It's it's the early model. It's I think it was 3.0, maybe certainly not 4.0. And I gave it, I decided to give it an original math problem, something that it cannot find on the internet, which which is really like a second, maybe third level problem that I teach to a group of kids. Once a week, I, I train kids for, I coach kids for like mathematics mathematical contests. And so the problem goes something like this, you know, Anne and Bob were given two natural consecutive numbers. They know their own number. They know the numbers are consecutive, but they don't know each other's. So Anne says, Bob, I don't know what your number is. And Bob responds, and I do not know what your number is. To which Anne says, no, I know your number. It is a factor of four. Okay, and so the question is, what is Anne's number? When I ask this question to a group or of seven and eight-year-olds, within a couple of seconds, somebody will say what the answer is, and we can just keep the intrigue up and see if any listeners will want to write to us on LinkedIn what the answer is. And ChatGPT said that. And then I kind of, like, I went cold a little bit. Because, because of how it was explaining why it thinks that's the answer, because it was completely and utterly incorrect, the explanation. But it was wow. incorrect in exactly the way how a seven-year-old explains it. So this was a little Turing moment for me because it responded not just as a human, but a particular kind of human, as, as a seven-year-old human child who is learning. And a year from now, they will give a perfect explanation because they will have the command of the logical chain. You know, if then, however, this is what happens, therefore it must be true that. They just do not have command of it at that age, but they will. And, and that's how ChatGPT responded. And that's why that was, it was kind of an eerie moment that it didn't just make any mistake. It made a mistake that a learning child makes. Hmm. And that's how I have faith that, yes, this is a learning neural network. It will continue to learn and get better. Well, one, I love, and I did not know that about you, that you teach children. I'm a big fan of giving back and paying it forward. So much respect to you for doing that. But in a way, it, it sounds like it's also beneficial for you in that it forces you right, to simplify things. That is such a good observation. You know, this is one of the most rewarding things that I do. However, the week goes well, not so well planned, unplanned. I know that come Friday night, I have these few dozen children who will be a little bit more confident in their skills at the end of the session, who will be a little bit more curious. I learn from them just as much as they learn from me, if not more, because they have this art of 
reframing problems in ways that I would have never thought before. So I've learned them not to just kind of what is what is the answer to some of these most challenging questions, but also how, how did you get there? And I learned so much from how they get there because it's not how I get there. Right, exactly. Well, look, when I started writing for Forbes, you know, I was told to keep it like at a third, fourth grade level. <laughs> right. And I've never forgotten that in everything, whether I'm writing, whether I'm speaking. And, you know, you have that, that I notice I have that line that I try not to cross where you don't want to insult the other person, where you dumb things down too much. But more often than not, I find whatever message I'm trying to deliver, if I keep it simple, you know, especially for CMOs, not to say CMOs are simple minded, but CMOs are so busy that it forces me to just get in and get out, as I like to say, and keep things at that very high level without going too far down a given rabbit hole. I have a similar observation. We actually have a joke that the, the higher you go up the chain, the chain, the more your deliverables should look like there for elementary school. There should be pictures and very few words, but like in big letters. But I think it's because they are they are so incredibly busy. They are thinking about so many different things at a given time and have precious little time to dedicate to kind of this new thing coming through the door. And so you have to make it so simple and so catchy and invite them to fill in the blanks and have a dialogue with you rather than trying to to fit an enormous text with 10 point font onto a slide and hope that somebody will read it and and internalize it on a level that you want. It is an art. Yes. In insights, that is a very important art, not just getting to the right answer. That is only part of the way, but making sure that your stakeholder is is walking there with you. And, and that is the harder of the two. It, it, it's very hard sometimes because there's information. I, I won't speak for you. I can speak for myself that if I'm presenting or I'm talking about something that I really want to get out, but I have to consider my audience. It's really that simple. Do you have any tips how you adjust your messages depending on the audience you are about to address? I, I do. And, and one, I'm going to steal what you just said about the higher you go up, <laughs> the simpler and, and more visuals, especially if you're doing a deck. You know, I mean, everybody listening should know this. You never want to have a, a lot of text on a given slide, right, in a PowerPoint deck. But the less slides, the more visuals, the more verbal you can be, the better. And you really have to become a storyteller. And I get it. That's not easy for, for everybody. I'm naturally comfortable in front of a group of people, and not everybody is. I understand that. But it really comes down to that very, very basic marketing 101, know your audience. Who are you speaking to, right? And then adjust your message based on that. That's as simple as I can make it. Yeah, that last part in particular, right? So I'm all for storytelling, but I think too much focus on storytelling results in being loud without being heard. Because you're, you're crafting the story, you're falling in love with the story, it makes sense to you, you're telling it the way it makes sense to you, the message is not landing because the other person is is not there. And so what we talk about at, at Clark sometimes is the insights community is, insights is all about empathy for consumers, 
which yes, that's what we do. But I think empathy for the stakeholder is so mm. important. Uh, trying to get into the shoes of this person that you are trying to influence or try to, to, to bring them something. Where are they? What are they prepared to hear at this time? What are they not prepared to hear at this time? What do you want to tell them overtly? And where do you want to leave breadcrumbs so that they get there themselves? And I exactly. think that's what the most effective communicators, the most talented insights people um, are, are capable of achieving which is quite remarkable. It's changing another person's mind. Exactly, exactly. You're, you're, you're selling, right, in some ways, which I know is an ugly word for some people, that word sell, but you are. It just is what it is, you know, whether you don't want to call it that or not, but mm -hmm. you're trying to get someone to agree and, and change their mind, like you're saying. You're persuading, yes. You're persuading, exactly. So we are recording this, for those who are listening, the day before Halloween. Mm -hmm. So I want to use a word <laughs> that's very appropriate for Halloween and insights. And that's the word scary. Are you seeing anything scary? Like, mm -hmm. and pun intended, is there anything that should scare a marketer or an advertiser or a brand when it comes to insights, whether it's now in the future, you know, I just thought it was appropriate given it's, it's the, you know, Halloween Eve, mm -hmm. if you will. Oh, I love that we came back to where we started, which is why does Chen Alpha say these very unflattering things about advertising? But also, I think it is a shared sentiment. And so, yes, I would love to have this little conversation with you about what is the state of, well, let's say advertising. Like marketing is a very big thing to bite off, but, but advertising and what changes are we seeing? And some of the changes that I'm seeing is it's kind of that swing of the pendulum where we do things because we can do them, not because they necessarily make sense to the consumer. So one thing I've noticed is that interactions have become fairly transactional. So there's this trigger-based engagement on the part of some brands. If I do X, I will get this, this type of advertisement. And that is actually extremely effective. Companies are getting great ROIs. Efficiency looks fantastic because you catch the person in the right moment with the right message because you know so much about them. So purchase is likely to follow. Also, you're talking to the people who are most likely to buy you because you can find them now. But what gets lost there is this arc of consumer journey. And sometimes there are completely obvious missteps. Like this just happened to me. A, a brand who knows me very well is haunting me with a product all over the internet until I look away and press buy. And what is the next ad I get from them? The happy news that this very product is now 70% off the day after. I bought it for full price. So what does it tell me? There isn't anyone who is looking at the entire arc of the consumer engagement over there. They just kind of go trigger response, trigger response, trigger response. There isn't an off switch. <laughs> the consumer has completed a purchase. What does it mean? How do we engage with them now? What type of conversation do we want to have with now? And to your point about competitive advantage, when everybody goes one way and you kind of start thinking the other way, I do think that this notion of consumer journey and orchestrating your engagement around consumer journey is going to become a source of a competitive advantage for, for companies who do this a little bit more intelligently. But so that's on the uh, through the engagement lens. I am curious of your opinion about what is happening in the world of creative 
I think we are seeing and we are hearing from forums like CAN that ideas are seem like they're getting quite a bit smaller. They're getting also more transactional. They're, you, you, you don't kind of see this emergence of something completely new how you would at those types of festivals in in the years past. And and I know you have a front row seat into some of these trends as someone who is connected to System One. You test a lot of um, a lot of creative. What do you see? What do you notice? So one of the lines and our, our tenants, our foundation at System One is the more people feel, the more they buy. Mm-hmm. And to get people to feel, you need to have emotion, right? And it sounds so basic. Yet it staggers me that so many brands still don't get that and feel like they have to be the robotic or very sell, sell, sell. And the ones that tap into that emotional side are the most successful. And it's not a coincidence. And it's been proven time and time again to tap into that uh, human side. And by the way, this applies to B2C and B2B, which is a whole soapbox issue of mine, how B2B marketers, as we approach the end of 2023, still do not get that they're marketing to another human. (laughs) (laughs) What we do is we measure emotion and how people respond. And again, the more they feel, the more they buy. And I was at Cannes this year and I saw the ads and yeah, there were some that were emotionally or rooted in emotion and they're great and they do very well, but there's still too many that you watch on TV, you see in print, you see online, whatever, that are just not moving that emotional needle. And I don't get it. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I know that's, look, that's a bit of a cop out, but I, if I knew the answer to that, I would be a gazillionaire. I don't know why brands don't, regardless of the product, don't seek, don't go for that, don't try to tap into that emotional side that the last time I checked, all of us humans have. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. You know, so what I'm notice is, noticing is that we might be misreading consumers lately. When consumers want engagement, we give them transaction. When they want levity and escape and humor, we give them purpose. When they want entertainment, we give them a speech about sustainability. Right? So it seems like there's an element of mirror gazing. Brands talk what they want to talk about, not always what the consumer wants to hear about. And to your point about emotion, it actually takes bravery to tap into emotion. It takes creative freedom and creative courage because it is harder. You are taking some risks more so than you do with a transactional product-oriented message, but then um, something is left missing. You, you brought up something a second ago, and I want to. I was at, as we're recording this, it's the week after the A Masters of Marketing event in Orlando, Florida, I was at. And at one of the breakout sessions, I forget who, and I forget the numbers, but they, they showed a, a piece of research that they had done. And it showed the difference between what marketers think consumers want versus what consumers actually say they want. You can probably guess it is a wide gap. And for the life of me, I never, ever understood why anybody cares <laughs> what a marketer thinks versus just asking the consumer themselves. Yes. And I don't go down that rabbit hole, but 
I wanted to bring that up, that that gap is so great between what a marketer thinks a consumer wants and versus just going right to that horse's mouth and them telling us. Yes, I, I have a little theory, which might be entirely wrong about at least like one reason why that is happening. And that might be because we have gotten a little bit disconnected since the pandemic and this working each in our like little universe as insights it seems we need to do a better job in connecting marketers to consumers directly right now. Mm -hmm. And that call is fairly urgent. So we need to get people out from wherever they are and, and into the field and with the consumer and with each other so that the thinking, the connection might grow stronger, the understanding might be deeper, they might start to develop some empathy and also collaboration. Kind of, having that that exchange of ideas that leads to bigger ideas when everyone is sitting in front of their screen and thinking about their own little idea well what we get in the end is little yep. ideas yeah exactly well listen i want to make sure i get to this because i'm always curious when i when and i have somebody on who's had the biggest impact on your career and why I think the type of leader that I have the most respect and admiration for is an expertise-based leader. So there are, there are different sources of leadership. Some people talk about authenticity and charisma and kind of the, the, the ability to lead the people. And I agree with all that. But I think the ability to set a vision in your area and understand your area very well to lead people along because they have faith in the, the outcome that you are trying to drive and not in your personality. And so the leader whom I have had the good fortune of working for, and now I work with him as, as my colleague, um, Andreas Wen, someone at Clorox who is an amazing insights person, but also an amazing R&D person and analytics. And now he is in the, even in the IT side of things. And, and he would uh, probably kill me if he found out that I named him on a podcast. But he is an example of an expert leader who I am learning from. Last thing. I'm a big music fan. <laughs> I have an album wall behind me of a very eclectic set of albums. My, it looks my great, by the way. Thank you. I know people listening can only hear, but they can't see it. But it's a very eclectic album wall. And one of my favorite songs is a song called Lean On Me. And the words have always resonated with me. And I always want to ask each guest, is there a song, is there an artist, is there a concert, is there a lyric that has always resonated with you and why? Tell me first, what, which line resonates with you in that song outside of the title? Is there like, this is the one? Yeah, the, the, there's. it's really every... Not to be a cop, but it's every lyric, but there's lines that like say, we all need someone to lean on and you can lean on me. And I've always felt that that's, that's who I am, that I want people to know they can lean on me. But there's also times where I need someone to lean on. And that's also another lyric. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. That's why that song resonates so much with me. I see. Um, a song that I like right now is Grace Kelly by Mika. It's a happy little humorous song. And the line that I like there is, say what you want to satisfy yourself, but you only want what everybody else says you should want. 
Mm. It's just such a deep consumer truth. It is such a deep human truth. But also, I'm reminded that he wrote this to express his feelings about the record label wanting him to fit a particular mold and, you know, don't. So breaking out of the mold, trying other ideas, trying things that you're not seeing everyone around you trying just might lead to a breakthrough. So it's a little reminder. I absolutely love that. I'm not familiar with the song, but I'm going to look it up uh, because I'm a big fan of, I've been breaking mold my whole life. <laughs> and I love that when someone can be encouraged to do that. It will brighten your just, day a little bit as well. It's a happy little song. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> whether it's to a song lyric, uh, a line in a movie or whatever, just to remind people that, you know, why fit in when you were born to stand out? Kind of. Oh, love it. That should be, those should be the final words in this podcast. Everyone, you heard Steve, why fit in when you were born to stand out? That's it. Those are not my words, but thank you. And on that note, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I've taken so many mental notes for part two <laughs> <laughs> that that I, I cannot wait to do this again with you. I really can't. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on. It has been fun. Thank you, Steve. And thank you for playing along and answering some of my questions as well. You are most welcome. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. 